Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you listen in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is episode 355 of our Bible Bites series this year as we read through the scriptures this year. My reading today is found in the book of James, James chapters 1 through 5. We're going to look at that book today. The author of this book is obviously James. Now, which James are we talking about? There are several mentioned in Scripture. There's the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, who Herod killed in Acts chapter 12. This is not that James. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, who was another disciple of Jesus. This is not that James. There is Jesus' half-brother, we believe, and tradition tends to hold that that is the James that is writing this book. We believe with all, with, uh, all you know, 99.999% certainty, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing this book. We're told about him being one of Mary's children, Mary and Joseph's children, in Matthew thirteen fifty-five, as well as in some other of the Gospels as well. But I, that was the one that I looked up. Now, notice when James writes this Bible, what he does not say. In his introduction, he identifies himself, but notice he does not mention his family relationship to Jesus. He didn't come off as some boaster that, hey, I'm the Lord's brother, like I've got some higher authority than any of you peons do. No, there was none of that, none of that in James's um, introduction. As a matter of fact, he just said, hey, I'm James, the bondservant, the doulos, the one who has made myself a servant of my brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is really the, the Lord himself. So he came to know Jesus. And if you'll remember, I want you to, I want you to jot down these scriptures or look them up. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Galatians 2, 9 and 12, and Acts chapter 15. And you'll read more about James. You will see that he was raised up in the service of the Lord to be and to become. He was an assistant to Peter. He became the leader and the uh, pastor of the Jerusalem church. He became the leader of the Jerusalem council. And it does tell us in one of those passages where after Jesus' resurrection, he came to his brother James. Now, before the, before the death and resurrection of Jesus, James was not a believer. And I, I, I personally believe that that um, wounded Mary's heart. We're not told of any of his brothers and sisters that believed in him prior to the resurrection. I, however, happen to believe that all of them came to faith in him after his resurrection. And I believe he, he came to every one of them. James is the only one that's mentioned specifically. And we will see that Jude, when we get to the book of Jude, is another brother, uh, half-brother of Jesus. He was another one of Mary and Joseph's children. So that's who this man is, James. Now, we believe this book to be one of the earliest, 
that is written and possibly the very first New Testament book written out of all of them. Now, that's debated, of course, and there are some a couple of different extensions of dates. One is 44 A.D. That was uh, given when James became the leader of the Jerusalem church and the council after Peter, when Peter had been released from prison at the time when Herod Agrippa died. You can read more about that in Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 23, and you will see there that Peter had, in essence, installed James. Um, also, you'll see in Acts chapter 15 that James was the leader um, and addressed the council regarding the circumcision question that came before them. The later date is 62 AD. That comes from something that Josephus mentioned as to the date of James' martyrdom, because this James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred as well. So that one, some indicate being from something that was in Josephus's writing. Most people do argue, and most scholars tend to uh, hold to the earlier date being about 44 to 46 A.D., very likely being one of the first, if not the first, New Testament book that is written, or that was written. This has a kind of a unique theme to it, and some people feel like James's message is somewhat harsh. He's not trying to be harsh. This is more of a how-to for the Christian life. It's like a manual. He covers practical Christian living and good works, and what he stresses here is the fruit or the evidence in the lifestyle of a sincere Christian disciple and believer. I love how Nelson's New King James Version Study Bible makes this note in its introduction. It says this, For James, works is a natural result of faith. When a person truly believes in something, he or she will act on that belief with James was sounding, with this epistle, James was sounding a wake-up call to all Christians, get your life in line with what you believe. There's a famous verse that a lot of people think about when they think about the book of James, and it is this, faith without works is dead, and we will see that one. But he's not saying that it's a works salvation. He's not discounting the justification by faith alone, which is the solid core of the gospel. What he's saying is that when you are justified by faith alone, if it is real, it will bear fruit. It will be evident in a changed lifestyle. That's what he's saying. It will cause your life to be different. Paul said it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. It is passed away. The new has come. So there's a change in lifestyle when there is sincere faith that justifies us in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing as with a, a tree. If a tree is healthy and alive, it is going to bear fruit. It doesn't have to struggle at it. It's going to be a byproduct. It will be a natural outgrowth of a healthy, living 
tree. It's just that simple. So he writes this to give that understanding to all of us as well so that we don't think, oh, well, you know, like Paul said, uh, he, he discounted people mistaking what he was saying about justification by faith alone, which he taught in Romans 1 through 5, but then he comes right up in chapter 6 and he says, does that mean you just sin and live any way you want to and dis discount and, you know, insult this grace that God has given you and saved you through faith? He says, no, absolutely not. And so James is sort of picking up on that as well. And he's saying that if you really believe in Jesus, your lifestyle will prove it. There will be works. And so he deals with those works and kind of gives us a how-to manual in the book of James. All right. So in chapter one, he first off starts talking about trials. Why? Because they were in a trying time. Persecution was starting to come. They had just not long before witnessed the death and crucifixion of their Messiah. And he had told them and forewarned them, hey, if they hate me, guess what? They're going to hate you too. So James comes along and basically he says, <clears throat> don't be startled. We're going to be hated. We're going to suffer trouble. We're going to suffer trials and tribulations. There'll be sorrow in this life. But he says, when that comes and your faith is tested, he says, let faith have its you know, work and let it produce the patience that it will produce. Patience is that staying power. That thing that says we're going to stay the course, we're going to endure. And when faith, when patience has its perfect work, then that person becomes mature. They grow to full age, complete, and in no part lacking anything. Complete in all respects. Complete in all areas. You see, when you become a believer... God's will and the fruit of the Spirit of God from within you, if you are healthy and you are connected to Him, I mean a healthy tree spiritually I'm talking about, if you're connected to Him and you are reading His Word and you are praying and you are growing in the Lord, you will have fruit that will bear good fruit, a, a, a fruit-bearing experience that will apply in all areas of your life. It will make your marriage better or your home, your family with your relationships with family members. It'll make your job better. It'll make your, your personal life better. There's ways and there's wisdom in God. It can help you guide in your finances so that your finances are better. I mean, God's word speaks to every area of life. And so that's what he's talking about here. You'll be complete lacking nothing, nothing absent in any area of your life. Now, does that mean we're all going to be rich and have a wonderful, keen, you know, wonderful, creamy life? No, absolutely not. He's saying we're going to have suffering. We're going to have trials. We're going to have tr temptations. But when we do, we stick it out. We stay the course. We keep our faith. We keep believing. In verse 5, I want to read verse 5 to you. He says this, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So he says, first of all, if you're not sure, if you lack wisdom in any area of your life, if you lack any wisdom and you need to know what to do, you need guidance, ask God. He says, ask God. 
And guess what? God's response is that he will give. And he will give bountifully, openly. He will give in a way, he says it, it uh, will without reproach. In other words, that means he's not going to berate you or rail or chide you for asking for it. In other words, he's not going to come. You're going to come and say, God, I need wisdom because I don't know what job to take. Or I don't know what school I need to go to. Or I don't know how to reach my, my husband in a, and how to respond to him when, he's, when he says mean things to me. Or, or I need help in this area. Or I need wisdom. What do I do about my health? What do I do about our finances? You, you, whatever wisdom you're needing in whatever area of life, you come to God sincerely as a child of the Most High God, and you ask Him, He's not going to up be up there going, you mean you came again? Didn't I answer your prayer yesterday? I'm so tired of you coming or, or any of that. There'll be none of that. Absolutely none. He's not going to chide you. He's not going to make you feel bad for coming. He will give and he will give freely, openly, and he will not make you feel bad for coming and asking. He is inviting you to ask him. And beloved, he may, he may direct you audibly. He may direct you some way in your spirit as to exactly what to do. Or he may lead you to his word and to develop principles from his word. For instance, in regard to finances, he might, he might teach you, get out of debt. He might say, you know, this is what you need to do. And you might read that in the book of Proverbs, for instance. You might read it in other places. Oh, no man, anything. He might tell you and he might lay out a plan where you start setting aside more money or paying more on a debt that you owe so that you get out of it faster. There's lots of ways that God responds to us with his wisdom. But if we ask sincerely, he will give. He will give freely and openly, bountifully. And he will not berate you for asking. Hallelujah. In uh, verse 6 through 8, he does deal next, however, with our motives for asking and how we're asking. So in other words, he says that faith is required. We just saw that in the book of Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. Why is faith necessary? We've got to believe God. Hebrews told us, you know, he that comes to God must believe must believe that he is. He's living and he really hears our prayers when we do come to him. And number two, that he rewards us if we diligently seek him. If you are sincerely after the will of God, he will answer you and he will show you. It may or may not be what you're expecting or what you want, but he will answer you and he will guide you and you will have that witness of the Spirit of God. He rewards us. So he says, you must believe. Otherwise, you know, you can't, you cannot have any doubting because doubting is, is a double-minded state. And what that means is you're kind of vacillating. You know, have you seen maybe these fans, if you run a fan to cool, you know, maybe at your desk or something like that, and they have these fans that oscillate and they sort of just turn back and forth and they're never really stable. You know, or, I mean, you have an oscillating button, maybe. Maybe you can turn that off and it'll be stable. But when they're in oscillating mode, they're just kind of weaving back and forth, never really stable, never really sure on anything. So it's an inconsistent and an inconstant setup and an and a experience. You're kind of tossed about with the waves. It reminded me of Elijah's experience on Mount Carmel 
when basically he stood up there and he says, why do you halt between two opinions? In other words, make up your mind, dig your heels in and stick to it. Is God God or is he not? Is Baal God or is God God? Is Yahweh God? He says, make up your mind. And so that's what he's talking about here is not being unstable, not being wishy-washy and kind of vacillating because we won't receive anything from the Lord when we have that kind of attitude or that kind of situation. He goes on, he talks about the folly of riches, realizing that we must be humble and recognize that all of these things, whatever we can accumulate in life, will pass. We will pass and we won't carry any of it with us. So humility is necessary. He talks about when we are put to the proof, when we are tested and tried, that we need to endure and come out of that. He goes on and he talks about true temptation, however, and he distinguishes the Lord will test our faith. The Lord will put us to the test sometimes, but he never tempts us to sin. There's never any enticement for us to sin from the Lord. He cannot be that way. He does not do that. He is the father of lights. There's no shadow. There's no um, desire in him. There's no ability in him for temptation in order to bring someone to a point of sin. That comes from Satan. Satan is the one. And what happens is you have a desire or you have a weakness in your life. Let's say, for instance, and I'm just using this as a simple example, but let's say, for instance, God has delivered you from alcohol or from drugs, and those were real desires in your life. Then, obviously, the devil will try to tempt you and entice you into that sin. But if God has truly changed you and helped you, don't feed that thing. Do not allow your own desire to be for that again. When the Spirit of God comes in and saves someone, He changes their desires. But in your flesh, you could, if you start hanging out with your old friends again, if you start, um, you know, if you go by the, the bar every week or whatever, or you start kind of tar turning in and saying, well, I'll just go in and I'll just have a tea. I won't, I won't have anything to drink. Or if you, you know, just start playing around with it or anything like that. If you don't really hate that thing and die to that thing, if there is left within you a yearning toward it at all, the devil's going to play on that and he's going to try to entice you to sin. And if you give in to that, if you give in, then that desire, in essence, kind of conceives like a woman would with a baby. It kind of conceives and then that baby that gets born is actual sin and you've fallen back into that trap again. And that sin will lead you to death, which is the wages of sin, if you don't turn to the Lord. And that's what he's talking about here, that God's not going to tempt you to sin. And he explains how a person falls into sin. And it always starts with their own desire for that thing. And then, of course, the devil's going to be right there to play on that. He goes on and he talks about how instead God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He can't give anything evil, but he is the giver of every perfect gift. And they all come from him, the father of lights. 
He is not fickle. He doesn't go changing his mind. He doesn't have praise. Be to God. Isn't this a rewarding and a reassuring um, understanding of God? He's not sitting up there having a bad day one day and saying, well, I'm just going to wipe you out. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of you coming to me. I'm tired of forgiving you over and over and over. I'm tired of whatever. And I'm just, I'm having a bad day. So poof, I'm done with you. No, he never has these fickle times. There's no variation with him. He is constant. Every single day, he is just as merciful as he was the day before and the year before. Every single day, he's just as just as he was the day before and the year before. Every single day, he's just as holy as he was the day before and the year before. Every single day, he's just as compassionate and loving as he was the day before and the year before. He is constant. He never, ever changes and there's no turning from him. There's no shadow of turning. He's not obscure. Hallelujah. He, his will, he makes it clear here, is that we all be his children, the first fruits of his creation, free from sin, saved from our sins, delivered from our sins, and free of it, and now walking in the kingdom of his light. Praise God. He goes on and he talks about different things. He speaks um, in some of these verses about not making quick, quick judgments of other people. You don't let your emotions run wild. Um, he speaks about how the, the anger of man does not bring forth the righteousness of God. And you can remember that even as parents, you know, take that and, and tuck that nugget away even as parents so that, that you're training of your children is proper and it's for the right motives. He talks about in verse 21, the implanted word that's able to save you, able to bring you to salvation. This implanted word speaks of that word that once you have heard it and believed the word of the gospel and you've received the word of God, it is implanted in you. It's like a seed that, that, because Jesus even called the word the seed. It's the word of God. He said that very clearly in his parable of the sower. So the seed is represented by the word of God and it gets planted in the soil of your heart, of your inner being, and it germinates. It begins to germinate and come to life within you. And because you've now got a new nature that God has saved you and given you a share in his, you are a partaker, a partaker of his nature. And so therefore that word is the implanted word. And, and James is saying here, it received that word. And then he goes on and he starts talking about how it needs to play out in our lives. When we've received the word, it's going to grow in us and there's going to be evidence of it in the fruit of our life. So he starts talking about that. He says, you've got to obey the word. You've received it. It's germinating. It's coming to life in you. Now you've got to cultivate it. You've got to water it. You've got to, you've got to work with it. You've got to keep the weeds away. You've got to work that thing and let it bring that obedience that it's birthing inside of you. So we've got to uh, see that and understand because he goes on. I want to read this to you. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away immediately, forgets what kind of man he was. 
but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in all that he does. In other words, he's saying, you know, you go to the mirror and, you know, you look in the mirror and you can tell when your hair's out of place and it needs to be brushed or, you know, if you've got something in your teeth or, you know, whatever. And, you know, or a smudge of dirt on your face or whatever it is. The mirror shows that to you. The word of God is like that mirror. And he's saying, you know, we got to keep looking in it because it's going to work in us. It's going to reveal what we need to see and what we need to fix. And then we need to be a doer of that. So if you go to look in the mirror and your face, um, you know, your hair is all disheveled and it's all mangled. What are you going to do? You're going to fix it. You're going to brush it out. You're going to make it, you know, better and, and put it in its place. And that's what the Word of God does for us, that implanted Word that's germinated inside of us. It begins to help reveal to us the areas that we need to, to obey, the areas we need to avoid, the things we need to fix, etc. So we have to keep looking in that mirror and do what's needed to be done to obey it. So praise be to God for that. He goes on and he talks about true religion, he calls it here. It's really true religious worship or service, the ceremonial duties and so forth. And, and we don't have those in the sense of ceremonial rites in the Christian faith necessarily. But all he's saying here is that if, if you want some true, honest faith in God that's resulting in good works, then these are what you need to do. He says to visit the uh, fatherless and the orphans, he talks about the people, he's talking there about the people that are lonely, the people that are forgotten, the people that are needy, the people that are bereaved, left alone, and deficient in some form of need. Those are the people that might need relationships, love, hope, fondness, tenderness, encouragement, care. He says, visit them. Be a companion to them. Help them. And then he says, keep yourself unspotted from the world. This gets to our personal responsibility. We've got to work on ourselves. We've got to keep ourselves and keep our eye on ourselves to stay without stain so that the dirt from the world doesn't get on us. And remember the mirror because remember, if you see it, get rid of it. You know, let the mirror show us and then obey what we need to do to fix it. All right, chapter two. He deals with partiality first and he talks about the evils of partiality. Talks about some of the poorest being actually rich in faith and heirs of the coming kingdom. So we don't need to judge each other or be partial because of what we think by worldly standards. He speaks about <clears throat> how partiality actually brings reproach to Jesus' noble name. It brings a blasphemy against the beautiful name of Jesus. He connects in verse 14 through 17, he connects faith in Jesus with corresponding fruit that will result in the person's lifestyle. In other words, he says, you know, hey, um, don't just go and tell somebody that, you know, needs a meal, hey, be blessed and be warmed if they're cold or whatever, you know. And if you can give them a meal, if you can give them a coat or whatever, and you don't do it, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? 
In other words, that's not real fruit. So he's talking about actually um, living out our lifestyle, living out our belief in our lifestyle so that we are true Christians and walking in a lifestyle that backs up what we're preaching and what we're saying. He gives the example of Abraham, talks about how his works proved his faith. Not the other way around. He wasn't saved because of works. Even though he's talking here about him being justified by works, he, he doesn't mean that he didn't have faith to begin with. But what he's saying is God saved him by faith before Genesis 22. But in Genesis 22, that faith was put to the test. And it was the works that Abraham did in Genesis 22 that proved his faith, that his faith was real. That's what he's saying here. All right. Then he starts in chapter 3, and he actually starts talking about our speech. He talks about the tongue and needing to be bridled and how it's like a, a bit in the horse's mouth, you know, if, if necessary, when they put the bits in there so that they can control them. Because otherwise that horse could be wild and could kick his, you know, buck and kick his rider off and go whatever direction he wanted to. So he's telling us about the tongue and how unruly it is. He talks about how there's both blessings and curses that comes out of it, or degradations, putting people down, saying ugly things about people, etc. So, you know, he says you, you shouldn't ever have both coming in at the same time. So he says, you know, that shouldn't be happening because you can't have a, a spring of water that's bringing forth fresh and bitter at the same time. He says, can a fig tree also bear olives? He says, no, a tree is going to bear the fruit that corresponds to that tree. And it's the same thing with our lifestyle. It's the same thing with our speech. So he's getting practical here. He's telling us about practical things. He goes on and he talks about evil and sensual wisdom, things that are not from God but are from earth and from the devil. Then he defines the wisdom that comes from God and he says, in verse 17, that the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So he's defining for us the characteristics of wisdom from God, and we need to understand the true wisdom. He goes in chapter 4, and he talks about motives for prayer. He talks about praying. And then he talks about why we pray, motives, so that we don't have ulterior and impure motives. If we ask with ulterior and impure motives, we're not going to get what we ask. But we need to ask in faith and ask for the right reasons and with the right motives. He goes on and he talks about how grace is necessary. He says, and he quotes, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to receive grace from God for whatever your situation is and whatever your need is, you must be humble. There is no other way. He talks about the way to have victory over the enemy. He says, therefore, in verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice the progression. We don't just resist the devil. We be submitted to God first so that we can then victoriously resist the devil 
and the devil flees from us. He speaks about drawing near to God and again, dealing with our conscience, dealing with our motives, dealing with the purity of our hearts. But he invites us, God invites us to draw near to him. He goes on in verse 13 through 17. He speaks about not just boldly declaring all these wonderful plans and purposes and things. Well, I'm going to do this tomorrow and I'm going to do that. We don't even know if we'll have tomorrow. So he says, you know, we should say, if the Lord wills, these are our plans. God is the ultimate controller and he knows what's best. Then he goes on in chapter and he chides the rich oppressors. Now, this is those, it's not that he's saying that you can't have riches and, and really love God and all of that, but he is chiding those that oppressed other people to gain their riches. In other words, they've got riches, but their, their employees or the people that they used at the bottom of the ladder to get there are barely scraping by or you know, don't have their own homes or aren't well provided for or whatever. And so these people have taken advantage of them. That's what the chiding is here, that they have oppressed other people to get their riches. And God is not happy about that at all. And so you can read about that here as well. Then in chapter five, he speaks about seven and eight. I want to read verse seven and eight to you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he says, you know, when a farmer plants a seed, he does not just run out the very next morning and expect it to be a fully grown apple tree with apples on every branch. It's not going to happen. He says, you know, he plants the seed and he waits knowing that in time, in due season, it will produce what it was supposed to produce and it will come to pass. He says the same kind of thing. We've got to be patient waiting for the coming of the Lord. And 2000 years later, this truth is still real and it's still applicable to us because Jesus is still coming and we are still waiting Hallelujah. And then we go on and he talks about the danger of grumbling and complaining, showing us that God is the only one who can really in who can really judge any situation. He gives the example of Job there that God had intended a good end for Job, but Job did have to experience quite a bit of suffering. And through that suffering, God brought him through and God was able to bring him then to that good end that he had intended for him. He talks about not making vows, not rashly swearing to anything, being careful that our yes is yes and our no is no. We've got to watch what we say or agree to. He speaks about giving hope to those that are suffering. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing psalms. If you're sick, call for the elders and have them pray Prayers of faith anointing you with oil, and those will affect the change. You know, prayer of faith always affects the change. As a matter of fact, let me draw to a close here as we begin to end. I want to read to you verse 15 and 16. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. He's speaking about how we can have effectiveness in our prayers. He says that if a righteous person is praying actively, efficiently, his prayer is going to be working, it's going to be operating, and it's going to work and effect change, and it will avail much. It's going to wield power to overcome in that situation. It's going to wield power to effect the change, and it will exercise the force needed for that prayer to be answered. Praise be to God. He gives an example of Elijah, and he says, you know, we think of Elijah sometimes as being this great, wonderful, godly man on a pedestal, but he says, no, he had like passions just like we do. He was of the same nature we are. He was just an ordinary man, but he was effective in prayer, and we can be also. And then he ends up speaking about going after someone who's erring, going after someone who hasn't believed or that is rejecting or has run away and has changed their minds. Now, you know, James may be ending that because he's remembering himself. You know, how much of Jesus' ministry did he miss because he wasn't a disciple of the Lord until after Jesus raised from the dead? Maybe he's thinking that I was that erring one one day. And so maybe because of that, he's reminding those that he loves and cares for in the church, go after those that are erring. Don't forget about them. He says, because if you bring them back, if you win them to the Lord, their souls will be saved and you will cover a multitude of their sins. Now, it doesn't mean that it's as if those sins you're trying to deceive people, not at all. But it's just saying that, you know, you don't air people's dirty laundry. You don't go out and just tell the world about everything that everybody did because every one of us have sinned prior to coming to Jesus. So he says that love will cover over that because you love that person who has truly repented. So when a person truly repents, sins are washed away and brand new has come for them. And so James ends his letter saying, go after those. Go after those people that need that and let them know that Jesus can save them and their sins be washed away. Oh, praise God. How what a beautiful way to end. I pray this has been a blessing to you today. And Lord willing, you, you will join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. In Jesus' name, God bless you.